expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Yes, good evening. And also joining us in studio is Michael Boyden. He's the Managing Director of Taiwan Asia Strategy Consulting. Michael, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Good evening. Today on the show, we'll be talking about a new AIIB drama. I've been missing that one for a, a while now. An upcoming demonstration against changes made to the high school history curriculum and the new details that have emerged from the investigation into February's deadly Trans-Asia crash. Uh, but first, we are, of course, starting with the fallout from the horrible tragedy that occurred last Saturday night at an event at the Formosa Fun Coast Water Park in Bali. Uh, the Ministry of Health and Welfare actually uh, released some updated statistics on the disaster victims yesterday. Ministry has now put the number of injured from the fire at 495. And uh, as, of course, we saw from the news yesterday, two have so far died. Uh, now, if you just saw these numbers, uh, you might not fully grasp uh, the magnitude of this disaster. Uh, a death toll of two is, is really not a headline grabber, but... Uh, it's really the severity of these injuries uh, that is the most staggering to me anyway, anyway with uh, many victims suffering uh, disfiguring burns or, or serious lung damage after inhaling the, the flammable particles. Uh, so currently, more than 400 are still being treated in hospitals around the island. And, and, and this is just uh, the jaw-dropping number to me. Uh, of those 400, 184 remain in critical condition. So that's 184 people uh, nearly a week later uh, still fighting life-threatening injuries. Uh, we knew pretty early on the fire was caused by starch-based uh, colored powder being used during the event. Uh, what other details have emerged over the past week? Well, they're still pretty keeping tight-lipped about the investigation, obviously, because it's an investigation, a legally criminal investigation. You can't go blabbing to the media about these things because it gets thrown out of court eventually. So they haven't really said very much, but we do know it was a fine cornstarch powder that was blown onto the crowd... Apparently 4,000 tickets were sold for this event. Mm. So whether there was 4,000 people there, I don't know. But obviously the, the cornstarch got blown into the crowd. They were sweaty, jumping up and down, hot lights, and it, it ignited. And, you know, of course it's been all over the television, all over the world. It's gone viral, the footage of it. So most people have seen how quickly this fire started and then went out. Yeah. And, uh, Michael, before we uh, turn on these mics, you were calling it an accident waiting to happen. That's right. Cornstarch is known to be a very flammable substance, and in the factories where it's processed and, and manufactured, there are usually very extensive and very rigid fire precautions. Um, it has the capacity for a very rapid um, uh, flammable chain reaction as, it, as it's uh, suspended in the air. And of course, uh, I think this was exacerbated by some of the other conditions present. Uh, there was a, uh, apparently a roof over the... the um, over the air, which trapped it inside. People had it all over their bodies and it stuck to them. So when it caught fire, it was burning on them. Uh, there seemed to be no coherent uh, sort of fire precautions or action taken at the outset. So, But this happened so quickly that right. I, I don't think any precautions would have had any effect. Yeah. Right, mm. right. Uh, and uh, 
the fallout from this, uh, Gavin, we now know that uh, two people have passed away so far. There's two people who died. One 20-year-old girl was taken off life support mm-hmm. at the Zhongshan Medical University Hospital in Taichung on Monday. I believe she suffered 90% second-degree burns to her body. And we had another chap, 19-year-old student at the Taipei College of Maritime Technology, and he passed away Thursday morning at 5.41. He was 19 years old, and he suffered third-degree burns to 95% of his body in the fire. Uh, and uh, as uh, the, you know, the medical end of this is, is treated, uh, I understand that uh, these victims are being treated all over the, all over the island. Uh, there's also an ongoing investigation into the cause of the fire. Uh, I think uh, organizers uh, of the event, uh, managers of the park, are, are both the subjects of this investigation. Uh, wh- what has that turned up so far? Well, again, they're being quite tight-lipped about this. They spoke to the uh, managing director, the owner, I believe, of the Formosa Fun Coast Water Park earlier this week, and she basically went to the Taipei Prosecutor's Office and left the Taipei Prosecutor's Office without speaking to anybody outside. So mm-hmm. she, had, she had no comment whatsoever. Yeah. But the new Taipei City government, of course, have filed, or they've, they've managed to do it, because the Sherlin District Court this week seized the assets of the three companies involved. And, of course, they are the former the Formosa Fun Coast, that's the water park's name, Play Colour, who organised the party, and Rayport International Marketing, who was also the company involved in organising the party. So their assets have been frozen, obviously, for compensation purposes. Right, and... Uh, Speaking of compensation, uh, there is uh, quite a bit of money that's uh, being turned up for donations to this. I think 500 million was quoted. Yeah, 500 million was yeah. quoted. New Taipei Eric Merritt says over more than 500 million NT has so far been raised just from public donations to uh-huh. help the to help the families of the victims and the victims themselves. And 100 million of that is coming from one of the shareholders of uh, one of the companies involved in this. One high lines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, right, so uh, definitely a, a, a lot of uh, money pouring in, uh, but uh, then there's also the issue of uh, inadequate insurance at this event. Well, I believe so. Uh, I, I gather that the, the, the public liability insurance amounted to only 50 million NT dollars, which uh, divided by you know, roughly 500 people works out at 100,000 each, which is obviously inadequate for the, the, uh, dealing with injuries, compensation on the scale that, that you've already mentioned. Yeah. Right. Of course, the government has also said that it will um, establish a foundation to provide long-term care for the victims of the park fire. And apparently, according to Premier Mao Zhuguo, the foundation will combine government and private sector resources. However, funding for this foundation is still being discussed. But an interministerial task force has been formed, and they're meeting this evening... Friday today for the first time and that's being headed by by Vice Premier Simon Jung and he's been charged with organising emergency medical assistance and ways to assist the victims in insurance and compensation claims and of course the Premier has vowed to find those responsible for the accident so that you know the the government is already looking to apportion blame for this. Yeah I mean this does uh, this does seem to be a pattern I've seen a number of people point this out online that uh uh, the, whenever one of these public safety incidents comes up the, uh, in Taiwan, the, the, the response to it is pretty overwhelming. I mean, the, 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 there is a genuine desire to help and to contribute uh, victims of, of these disasters. Um, uh, on, on that front, uh, one of the folks that is uh, trying to help this week is uh, J.J. Lin, actually. Oh, that's become rather a perverse way of saying it, but the theme tune of the fire disaster, really. Yes, a song called I Pray For You. It was released on YouTube on Wednesday of this week. 流星坠落了天空依然在等着你许下一
While the music was written by Lin, who's from Singapore, the lyrics were written by Taiwan's Law Wenyu. Of course, there are just two of the numerous celebrities who have come forward this week to you know, voice their support for the victims of the fire. All right. I, I, I think one positive note out of this is the extent to which Taiwan's hospital system was able to absorb all the, the people who were injured. Yeah. Uh, you pointed out almost 500 people involved, uh, nearly 200 of them still in intensive care. And the system has coped uh, magnificently. So I think that's, uh, you know, one, one positive that comes out of this. Yes. Yeah. Although the yeah. government is, uh, is calling on residents uh, who suffer injuries to avoid going to the emergency room for non-life-threatening mm, injuries. Yes. Right. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's mm. still very much in place. Um, but uh, we are going to have to leave that story behind. And uh, we're leaving it for another recent tragedy, unfortunately. Uh, the Aviation Safety Council released a preliminary report on the investigation into February's TransAsia plane crash yesterday which our listeners likely remember saw Flight 235 crash only minutes after takeoff into the Geelong River, uh, claiming the lives of 43 people on board. Uh, Now, this report doesn't assign responsibility for the crash, uh, but it does seem to point pretty strongly toward human error as the cause. Uh, Gavin, uh, what did you take away from this? Well, obviously, the the pilot was partly to blame, and apparently the the ground control are also partly to blame, aren't they? Because apparently the the pilot of the aircraft, which was an ATR-72600, a turboprop aircraft, apparently reported a problem with one of the engines prior to takeoff. Yeah. But then was allowed to take off after taxi. Was ta- In fact, he was taxiing when he reported the problem to the tower. The tower didn't do anything about it. He continued to take off. He took off. He noticed there was a problem, but he shut down. Sadly, of course, for everybody concerned, he shut down the wrong engine. Right, and he didn't notice that until about eight, eight uh, seconds before eight the seconds crash. Eight seconds later, yeah, yeah, before right. the crash. And, of course, yeah. like our listeners with the fire the powder fire they probably saw this video all over the internet as well with the oh, plane yeah. on the end yeah. tipping sideways and crossing the bridge and clipping the taxi right this this is uh, also uh, another incident that raises uh, certain uh, public safety concerns uh, another thing that came out of this report uh, was uh, revelations that the pilot failed a simulation test for uh, a very similar set of circumstances about a year earlier that's right. I mean, pilots uh, are, are, are routinely and periodically tested uh, in a simulator for their response to certain emergency situations. And losing an engine or engines is, is one of them. And uh, I, I gather that this, this pilot failed, failed that test first time around, uh, retook the test and then uh, apparently did it satisfactorily the second time. Uh, but when push came to shove, came to shove, uh, he failed the test again. Right. Um, and you were saying that this is uh, actually kind of a common mistake for pilots to it's, make. It's, it, it is. It's, it's certainly not unknown in, um, in, um, in the aircraft, a- aviation world where the pilots, despite all the indicators they have, to the contrary, they shut down the wrong engine. Uh, Aeroplanes, uh, two-engine planes, are designed to be able to fly and land safely on one engine. Mm-hmm. Um, four engine planes on two or three right uh but uh, of course if the pilot shuts down the the good engines well then that's it's curtains yeah. right yeah right and I, I of course ideally what we would have hoped would have happened after the pilot recognized that uh, there was a problem with one of the engines he mm-hmm. keeps the other one maintained circles back and, and right. lands but unfortunately that's not what happened that's i i believe that was his intention to right. to gain a little height on, on the one engine circle round and land mm. uh but 
and he shut down the wrong engine. Yeah. Now, Gavin, uh, on the release of this initial report, uh, the, the, I believe TransAsia has uh, given a little bit of a response. Uh, what have they been saying this yeah, week? The president of TransAsia, Fred Wu, he said that the airline has been asking aviation experts as well as the manufacturers of the ATR and the Airbus, because, of course, TransAsia also operates Airbuses, to carry out safety checks on all its fleet and train its personnel. And apparently, according to Wu, he's, of course, the TransAsia president, a full-scale improvement plan for flight safety is being drafted by the chief product safety officer of Airbus. And apparently, he's, he's conducting on-site inspections of TransAsia's Airbus fleet at the moment. All right. So uh, a story that we're certainly going to continue to follow. Uh, another point worth making is uh, this was a preliminary report. A draft of the final report is going to be issued in November, uh, and that final report will include uh, the suspected cause of the crash and recommendations, uh, which this, this current report that we're talking about did not. So uh, look for that in November. And then the final, final report, I understand, uh, will be coming out in April of 2016. Uh, so it is now time for a commercial break. So we are going to have to leave uh, these very sad stories behind. Uh, but do stay with us. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Uh, stay tuned for more news from Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. Once again, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Michael Boyden. And uh, let's just jump back into things. Uh, it's been out of the news for a while now, but uh, this week we finally get to talk about our favorite globally influential acronym once again, the AIIB. That is, of course, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And uh, what put it back into the news? Well, there was a signing ceremony this Monday for founding member countries. And uh, for those of you who are just tuning into this story, remember Taiwan was not allowed to sign on as one of those members. Uh, but those countries that were allowed uh, this Monday, they, were all si they all signed on to the institution's legal framework. It was a big ceremony. Uh, that was the international headline. But there was a little additional bit of news that ca caused quite a bit of stir here in Taiwan. Uh, that is the introduction of n new rules that uh, may, many believe to be directed against Taiwan specifically, uh, forcing it to accept a lower status as an applicant to the bank. Uh, so we're about to get into some procedural wonky bits. Uh, I apologize to everybody for that, but uh, I'm going to do my best to explain it. My understanding is that according to this rule, uh, applicants who are not a sovereign state or do not control uh, their own international relations will be required to apply through a bank responsible for their international relations. So basically, Taiwan wouldn't be able to apply on its own behalf. It would need to find another bank to do it uh, on its behalf. Uh, that's what the critics uh, suspect the intention of this rule is. Uh, Michael, what, what, what issues do you see this new rule raising for Taiwan? Well, clearly, there's the the uh, the issue of Taiwan's international space or lack thereof, and uh, this really w w the extent to which it does or does not have that now is still very very clearly at China's behest. Uh, we we've seen Taiwan uh, conclude a couple of uh, free trade agreements with Singapore and New Zealand. There may be more in the pipeline. Uh, this would not have happened without China's uh, agreement. So here is. China's playing the bad cop again now. Um, and uh, probably if, if China wants Taiwan in, in sufficiently, uh, a, a, a way will be found, I'm sure. Uh, a compromise will be found. Uh, but um, certainly 
there, there's a lot of uh, eagerness on the <coughs> excuse me on the Taiwan side to to be part of this initiative. Um, however, I think the motives are questionable. Mm. Uh, this seems to me to be um, more about uh, China uh, creating its uh, own sort of global financial institution to perhaps not to rival is the word, but to uh, occupy some some of the same space as the IMF, the World Bank, ADB and others, and which would give it more heft, of course, as it's um, as it's. um, it's the principal founding member. Right. Yeah. And it, it, China clearly believes that it's underrepresented in those uh, institutions right. that already exist. Yes. Uh, and Gavin, so the government responded uh, by saying that, no, 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 these rules don't apply to Taiwan. Taiwan is a sovereign uh, country. And if, if China does try to apply these rules, we just won't apply at all. Uh, but then they also said that they're going to uh, apply through the Asian Development Bank. Uh, so uh, give us a sense of the local, the domestic politics on this. Well, Taiwan in the Asian Development Bank is referred to as Taipei China. Now, well, the government don't really like that title. They would sooner have the title Chinese Taipei. But if they do insist on joining through the Asian Development Bank, they'll have to stick with the moniker Taipei China because, of course, the Asian Development Bank won't change the moniker just for this which has all led to a bit of a sticky wicket for the government, considering it's now stuck between a rock and a hard place there because it can't join as Taipei China. It really doesn't want to join as Chinese Taipei because it said that's the bottom line. And, of course, they're facing all sorts of um, sort of opposition, so to speak, from the opposition who have accused China of coming up with the new rule you spoke of earlier simply to downgrade Taiwan's international status if it wants to join the bank. Right. And uh, I've heard uh, from the DPP, I mean, they they say that uh, the government trying to apply through the Asian Development Bank is just an attempt to uh, give, you know, China uh, an opportunity to interpret the rules one way, Taiwan an opportunity to interpret the rules another way, but is, you know, kind of a concession in and of itself. But, it, but I said that if they, if they join through the Asian Development Bank, they have to be called Taipei China. Right. Rather than Chinese Taipei. Sticky wicket, I think, is the right word. Right, yes. I th- <laughs> <laughs> uh, So do, is, uh, do we see this as a, as a serious impediment to t- uh, Taiwan joining the AIIB? Is, is, is this still going to happen, or, or, or is, this, you know, is there a real question mark now? My money's already actually happening. Of course, the government, when, yeah. they, when it first talked about it, the government said they were going to pay 2.2 billion NT to join the bank. They've now upped that figure to 11 billion NT. And forever the cynic I am, if you wave 11 billion NT in front of Beijing, Beijing's going to go, thank you very much. Ka-ching. Yeah, yeah, thank, right. yeah right, basically. Yeah. Right. Money talks. That's, that's yeah. what the application note should contain. So, uh, you know, I, as I said before, I, I think a compromise will be found on the name or somebody will, will have to climb down, but it won't be, won't be China. They're not used to doing that. Uh, so uh, possibly they could use the name under which... Taiwan joined the WCO, the Customs Territory of Taiwan, Penghu, and all the rest. Yeah. Mm. So, definitely options there. We'll see what they come up with. Uh, but we're moving on. And uh, if application processes to international banking institutions isn't fun enough for all of our listener- listeners out there, don't worry. Up next, we're talking about textbooks. But, uh, no, this actually, this bit of news has actually been one of the more exciting things to follow in Taiwan recently. Specifically, we're talking about the long-standing controversy surrounding revisions made to Taiwan's history curriculum. And those are set to take effect next month. 
Critics say the changes overly emphasize China's role in Taiwan's history and leave out the contribution of others. Uh, the controversy has become the subject of debate and protest. And coming up this weekend, student demonstrators have said uh, they're planning rallies to be held in front of the Ministry of Education. The ministry, meanwhile, maintains that the new curriculum provides an accurate recounting of Taiwan's history. Uh, so just to dig into these changes a little bit uh, and, and give people a sense of what we're talking about here, Critics of the new curriculum uh, say that it places more of an emphasis on Chinese literature. They say it de-emphasizes anti-government uprisings, such as the 228 incident, uh, and uh, changes words used for China and Taiwan and certain other terminology that they see as uh, politically motivated. And just in general, uh, the critics see this as uh, placing this history more in line with uh, what the KMT uh, political narrative for Taiwan's history would be. Uh, and uh, to help us understand exactly what's being changed here, uh, I spoke earlier by Skype with Professor Megan Green of the University of Kansas, who has written before about changes to Taiwan's history curriculum. Uh, she brought up another point of contention. Uh, she says that the changes move away from the curriculum developed during the DPP administrations in the late 1990s and early 2000s uh, that more heavily emphasize Taiwan's history as the subject of colonial rule. If you understand Taiwan's history in colonial terms and you think of the Chinese as colonizers, too, you know, or the KMT as colonizers again after after 1945, then that really frames your understanding of that relationship between Taiwan and China. You know, that China, that Taiwan is a victim of Chinese colonization, just as it was a victim of Japanese colonization, for example. If you take out that language, then it, then it, uh, uh, the language of colonization, then you really change the whole lens through which you're seeing the relationship between China and Taiwan. So, so for many, uh, what's at stake is is really uh, the identity and the status of Taiwan. Uh, so we can really, uh, it's easy to see how this has become so contentious. Uh, and the, the subject of uh, protest. But uh, Gavin, I, I understand that the Ministry of Education has actually made some concessions, right? But they've turned around and told the teachers, you can, well, you can use the new ones or the old ones. Right. You don't have to use the ones we've changed. You can use the ones that the other government changed. That's a bit of a facetious way to look at it. But, I mean, that's the crux of it, really. If you don't use ours, you can use theirs. So, But this uh, doesn't seem to be diffusing the situation at all. Well, no, because, of course... When governments change history books all over the world, you're going to irk lots of people, basically, yeah? There's always some kind of political bees yeah, yeah. nest you're going to stir up. Basically, again, if you change the history books, your, your opposition or support of the changing of history books de depends on one's political bent, of course. Yeah. And, of course, the Taiwan Solidarity Union are the ones up in arms about this, and they've basically told teachers not to use the new books at all. Right. Right. So, yeah, it sounds like the Ministry of Education is going to go through with these changes, but they're actually they're, they're essentially calling for a boycott of these textbooks. The TSU are calling for a boycott. Yeah. Yeah. The government said, no, you can use both. Don't really worry about it. Right. Uh, what, what are supporters of these uh, changes saying? I know Hong, uh, Hong Shouju has come out in strong support of these changes. Was, uh, she said they're not enough. They're not enough, yeah. They haven't gone far enough. No, no. Uh, Michael, what do, you, what do you take away from all this? Well, what I, say, I, th I think there's an element of absurdity in all this. Uh, and uh, also it, it's um, a sorry state of affairs when, you know, history and, you know, history is fact. You know, it happened. Uh, becomes a political football in this way so uh what are the kids to think you know right um and uh i think 
uh, allowing teachers to, the individual teachers, as Gavin said, to decide which book they use is um, abrogating the decision. Is actually, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a cop-out. So it's shifting the burden on to the individual teachers, I think, very unfairly. Yeah. It almost makes you wonder if there's going to be uh, a state of affairs where there will be regional understandings of Taiwan's mm. history where you know students in one area mm. are going to receive mm. one kind of education right. and in another area right. are going to receive a very right. different education. Yeah. Oh, like in America. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a fair point to make. Um, all right, so uh, look for how this all plays out in August. We're going to know for sure uh, what what is going to happen. That's when the new new school year is starting, so the new textbook should be coming out at that time. So uh, we'll have a better picture of, of how this all shakes down then. Uh, moving away from that story, though, and uh, once again, we are rewarding you folks who are sticking it out through the podcast version of the show with a bonus story. Uh, last week, we talked about a hostage situation stemming from complaints over a delivery of fried chicken wings. Uh, this week, we're going in a slightly different direction, and uh, I'm not even going to set this story up so much. Uh, I'm just going to say two key words to set this up. Watermelon toast. Gavin, why do these words go together? Because in Elan County, there is a bakery known as Jimmy's Bakery, and he's come across a good idea. He's invented watermelon toast. Okay. Not only your red watermelon toast, also your yellow watermelon toast. <laughs> you got varieties. He's really? Got varieties of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And they, they, you know the Japanese watermelons are square. Yes. But, well, of course, he bakes his bread with the green water, green colouring the, the 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 bread skin the crust crust yeah. rather. That's <laughs> the word I'm looking for. Right. Skin the crust. The, cr- the crust is green and right. black, like right. watermelon. Right. And inside, you cut it open, and it's pink with black dots like the seeds. Just like or the seeds. Or it's yellow with black dots like the seeds. Now, apparently, Jimmy's Bakery in Elan County, it only makes 100 loaves per day because, of course, this is labour-intensive bread. This is not just banging it together and sticking it in the fridge, letting the yeast rise, stuffing it in the oven. This is very labour-intensive bread. So it only makes 100 <laughs> loaves per day. Now, believe it or not, the bread is made with charcoal, green tea... And alas, strawberry food colouring, which means that it actually tastes as strawberries, not watermelon. (laughs) Uh, But it's called watermelon bread because it looks like watermelon. As long as it's fruity. As long as it's a little fruity. There you go. Now, they're out there. Of course, since Jimmy's Bakery in Elan County, I'm advertising that again. If you are there, go there. Why not? It's something to do. Since Jimmy started baking this bread, other bakeries all over Taiwan have started baking this bread. It's been watermelon toast now is the latest fashion for food in Taiwan. If you just go on Instagram or, or something else like that, you YouTube. can find a ton of photos. A ton of photos, there's yes. videos, there's, it's, watermelon bread is everywhere. But I hear that the, a lot of people in Hong Kong are up in arms because they claim that they invented watermelon bread. Really? A, a yes. regional spat. And oh, that the, no. Maybe this and will that, lead to gunship uh, the Taiwanese, <laughs> Yes, Taiwanese stole the idea. So now we have a so, new history controversy. Yes, we do. Uh, but really, no. What what else what would you expect from the people that gave the world bubble tea? Yeah. Watermelon bread and bubble tea go together. This is, no, this is serious innovation. And this is Taiwan at its best, coming out with game-changing products. <laughs> yeah, right. watermelon toast. Right. right. But let me before we go, I do have a quote here, a quote from the bakery owner. Okay. And he's he came out with a great quote about why he decided to invent or that's up for contention of course because maybe he nicked it <laughs> off the people from Hong Kong. But he says he invented and created his watermelon bread because he wanted a, a food to appeal to children who he say lose their appetite in the hot summer months. 
It's so hard to make children eat these days. That's true, yeah. You got to trick them into it. (laughs) Uh, All right, so you have a new way to trick your children into eating bread during the summer. Uh, True innovation. Uh, But we are going to have to leave the show there for today. You can leave your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. And Michael Boyden. Thank you as well. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Don't wait to come